Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. So in our study of the book of Revelation, we've been looking at the seven churches of Asia, and we've learned that each church can represent a certain time period in the overall church history since the beginning of the church. We've also learned that it's a lot like Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. The enemy, Satan, has sown tares or seeds of discord, seeds of false doctrine, seeds of hatred, and sin in the church ever since her beginning. And these seeds have flowered into a bitter fruit over the centuries. And we're not just talking about the Roman Catholic Church either. These seeds are growing bad fruit in the Protestant churches and the history of the Protestant church as well. So that begs the question, is there hope for Christians today? Is there a remnant left that is following the true word of God? Can churches be good? And if so, what does it take to be a good church? Well, let's answer these questions and talk about it coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles, and I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today is going to be exciting because today marks the change in the book of Revelation. We are going from studying mainly the history of the phases of the church to things that are current today. In fact, some of the things we will talk about today, most of us who are alive have experienced them. And this starts the transition from understanding what the church went through to what it is going through now. And this will allow us, with those two points, the past and the present, to have a good interpretation, a direct line of interpretation to the prophetic passages of the book that are coming up. So this is exciting. We are now talking about things that are happening today. So let's get right into it. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. He is the one who has the key of David. He opens doors and no one can shut them. He shuts doors and no one can open them. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Look, I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. I will write my God's name on them, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and they will have my new name inscribed upon them. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
Wow, this is exciting to read about the Church of Philadelphia. The word Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, as you well know, and it comes from the Greek word for love, phileo, or that bonding love, that tight bonding love between two very, very close people. And the reason to me it's so exciting is that this church is has a message from Christ that's extremely uh, positive. There's virtually nothing in this church that he is pointing a finger at saying they need to improve. Now, the only other church that that happened with was the second church. If you look back to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8 with the church of Smyrna, that church also had no sin. And that church was told uh, basically just a warning from Christ that even though they're doing great and he's proud of them, that they were fixing to go under severe persecution or tribulation, according to some Bible translations. But again, remember, whenever you see the word tribulation in the Bible, it does not refer to that seven-year period of time that's prophesied in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's distress. That's different. In the Bible, whenever you see the word tribulation, it refers to the persecution of believers. Christian persecution that's driven usually by a governmental agency to try and drive out the faith. So that church was being warned about persecution, the church of Smyrna. But this church is not even being warned about that. This church has a very positive future. An open door has been set upon them. Now, why is that? Well, let's look at the reputation, what he said about them, what he knows about this church. He says he knows all about their works, everything they're doing. He says that they have little strength, yet they obey. Listen to him, verse 8. I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. So they have works. They're doing the right things they're supposed to. They're little. They're small. They have little strength. In other words, they're a small church, but they're still accomplishing everything they're supposed to be doing. And he says they did not deny him. So evidently, the church of Philadelphia went through a time of persecution, just like all Christians did in the time of John when this letter was written to this church. They all were being persecuted, yet this church came through it without denying their faith. The believers held firm and did not walk away from the faith, even when faced with jail or martyrdom or whatever form the persecution took. They overcame and they kept their faith. Now let's talk about this open door that Jesus mentioned. Let's look at verse eight. I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. Now what in the world is it talking about? Well, that's pretty clear, I think. Even uh, people today still use that metaphor, saying, well, uh, the Lord shut a door in front of me. Or uh, you ask somebody, hey, did you get that promotion? No, the door was shut, but I'm going in a different direction. So we use that today. An open door obviously means it's a direction that you've decided to go through, or in in this case, God opened up a door and wants them to go through it for some type of ministry as a church, some type of impact in their community that he wants them to accomplish. Now, I think it's cool that he uses the metaphor of an open door because it goes back to the way he described himself. Look at how he described himself. Verse 7. 
Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. Now that applies to the church because Jesus has set himself apart. He's holy and he's true. There is no wavering. And he is proud of the church for being like him. They too have set themselves apart to serve Christ as holy and that they are true. So you can see how he describes himself because they are showing the same traits that he is, uh, has in his life. They are trying to copy them into his life, just like all Christians should, to be like Christ. And they are. They've been holy and true. But then he goes on. He says, he is the one who has the key of David, who opens doors and no one can shut them. He shuts doors and no one can open them. Now, what is this key of David? Well, let's flip over to Isaiah 22, verse 22. Isaiah 22, 22. And what's going on here is that Isaiah is giving a prophecy, and uh, there was a palace administrator named Sheba, and Sheba was uh, having uh, difficulty with Isaiah and caused some problems. And so he had a message uh, to Sheba saying that you will no longer be the administrator. And he says, I'm going to give your position to another person. In fact, in verse 20, it says, I then will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, to replace you. And he will have your royal robes, your title, and your authority. So he's replacing. God's causing something to happen where Shebna loses his job. And this other servant who follows God, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, to replace uh, Shebna. Then it says this. He will have your royal robes, your title, and your authority. So he's going to become the palace administrator. And he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And this is the key verse, verse 22. I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. He will open doors and no one will be able to shut them. He will close doors and no one will be able to open them. So this person uh, that uh, uh, Isaiah was prophesying about, Eliakim, he was basically becoming the new palace administrator. And so this phrase, uh, just like any kind of administrator, he has the keys, literally the keys to the kingdom. And he can control anything that's going on. He answers only to the king. And so he could literally open up the physical doors, but also the metaphorical doors to allow people to do things or to stop people from doing things. He had the power. So Jesus is saying, look, as heir to the throne of David, he holds the keys. And because he holds the keys, he's putting a door open, an open door before this church so that they can accomplish God's plans for them. And it's an open door that no one can shut. And he says all this to them because they have been such a faithful church, a pure church, a holy church, a true church. And they have been obedient to him. And even though they're small and have little strength, they've been persevering. Now listen to what he says to this church, the message that he gives this church. And this starts in verse 9. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan, those liars who say they are Jews but are not. In other words, today we're talking about fake Christians. 
people who are really entrapped by Satan to do his work, like it talks about in uh, 2 Timothy, but people who aren't believers, and but they're entrapped by Satan to do his work. The tares, in other words, just like in the parable, the tares within the church, they're bogging the church down. Those liars who say they're Jews but are not, he's going to cause them to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Now, what he's saying here is, look, he's opening up a door for this church to persevere and go through, and it'll be an open door of ministry, one that will affect the kingdom in a very positive way. But the tares, the people who aren't Christians within the church, the people that tend to try and resist these type things in the church, the people that Satan uses and has entrapped to disrupt a church, they are not going to matter anymore. This church will have so much momentum behind it, they will have victory over all the dissension these people try and bring, and that they will be able to accomplish what Jesus has for them. So you can see this church is an extremely dynamic church. It is a faithful church. It is a church dedicated to serving God, and the believers within this church are wanting and and have a strong desire, a passion for Jesus to serve him. And therefore, God's opened up a door for them that they will walk through a ministry that they can achieve to impact the kingdom for good. And it's something that was entrusted to them because Jesus knew he could count on them because they are obedient and faithful. Now, What does this mean as far as the historical perspective? What time period could this church represent? Now, I promise you that things are gonna be current, they are. So we're just gonna talk about a little bit of history, not much at all, because this church, as you'll soon see, is still going on today as far as this time period in the church history. If we look at it from the interpretation of historical meaning like we've been doing with all the churches. So the church of Philadelphia could very easily relate to what I call the time period, the Great Commission Church, the Great Commission Church, the 1700s, the 1800s, and the 1900s, 300 years from the 1700s all the way through to the turn of the 21st century. So the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s. And really, as we're going to see, it's still going on today. This church is going on and will continue all the way up to the rapture. And we'll talk about that coming up. But during this time period, after, you know, the Protestant Reformation, you know, a lot of things that were good happened but a lot of bad things happen too. You know, remember, like I said, don't get in your mind that everything that happened uh, with the Protestant Reformation was good. It wasn't. Some of these same tares, these seeds that Satan planted within the universal church, which is now called the Roman Catholic Church, after the Protestant Reformation, it still had some of these seeds in some of these churches, and Satan was using the same tactics even in the Protestant churches, and causing some of the same problems. Nicolaitanism, where they were saying, you have to follow the the pastor or the priest of this church uh, because he is your mediator between man and God. Following some of the same false doctrines, 
that the Catholic Church was doing. There was also uh, false teaching coming up in the view of Calvinism. We've talked about that. Calvin was doing some very bad teaching. And there was persecution still going on during this time, the Protestant Reformation. But after the Protestant Reformation, after things kind of settled down in this Reformation period, the 1700s started, and there was a change in the church. Regular people, the Holy Spirit was calling out to regular people, not the priests necessarily, not the pastor, some of them were, but the vast majority of the people that were being uh, caught up in this revival fire was just the regular people going to church and listening to the Holy Spirit and wanting to pursue the heart of God and follow Him and what He told them to do. And that's why I call it the Great Commission. Why? Because that is our number one job, the Great Commission. Remember Matthew, the last verses of the book of Matthew. Okay, Matthew 28. And we're going to read the Great Commission to you. This is the marching orders, if you will, that Jesus gave the disciples when he was entering heaven, when he was rising up to go to heaven, the ascension. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the Great Commission is for people, not just the priests, not just the pastors, but every believer for all the people to go and do what? Make disciples. In other words, evangelize, share your faith, lead people to Christ. Then teach them the basics of the Bible. Show them how to study the Bible. Show them the doctrines of the word. Show them how to live as a Christian and follow Jesus faithfully and with endurance. That's what it means to make a disciple. And in starting in the 1700s, the church started doing that and fulfilling the Great Commission. And that's why I call it the Great Commission Church. During this time period, historians will point to what they call four great awakenings. Now, what's an awakening? Well, awakening is a revival that happens in a huge area, uh, you know, internationally, really. And it results in a big push of evangelism or missions or both. Uh, a lot of missionaries would, will come from this time period, the Great Commission Church that started in the 1700s. Now, here's a little bit of the history. I'm going to go through it real quick. The first Great Awakening happened in 1730, okay, and went on for about 25 years. The second Great Awakening happened around 1795, 1800, started then and went for an, a 35, 40 years. The third Great Awakening happened around 1855, uh, and then went on all the way up through 1900 for about 45 years. So 25, uh, 35 roughly, and 45. Those are the movements called the first three Great Awakenings. The Number one, number two, number three. 
the three great awakenings. But then there was the fourth one that most historians now of church history point to. And this one happened starting around 1960 and went on for about 20 years through 1980. And it was commonly called the Jesus Movement. And this was a huge revival within America, and it spread to Australia and throughout Europe, England, and other countries in Europe. And it brought churches back to a conservative viewpoint of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of all the Great Awakenings, and I've already discussed the Jesus Movement with you once before. You can go back to the uh, trailer episode, was called a trailer on YouTube, but it's episode zero. And when I started this Bible study, and it talks about the, the uh, Jesus movement and what happened then. But the point is that there's been four great awakenings that led to a huge evangelistic push and a huge missionary movement. And it's helped spread the gospel further and further and further throughout the world. And that is in relation to a prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, starting in verse 14, well, let's go back up a little bit. I'm going to read Matthew 24, starting in verse 9. This is a prophecy about the last days that Jesus gave. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because of your allegiance to me. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will lead many people astray. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. Does that sound familiar? I'm telling you, we need a great awakening now because, because of COVID and so many people not going to churches. Christians' love is growing cold and has been for the last 20 years, but it's really growing cold now here in America. Verse 13. But those who endure to the end will be saved, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then finally the end will come. Now, from based on what Christ is saying in Matthew 24, there in that passage, and we're going to look at Matthew 24 in more detail here in a couple of weeks, but looking at just that small passage, it talks about another great awakening, where this time it actually will take the gospel to every corner. And we're almost there yet, people. We are. Almost every uh, language group, almost every speaking group, you know, it has their own languages. Almost every language group has a Bible translated in their own language. Now, there's a f several more we have to do. And they're usually very small populations, so they've been saved to last. We're trying to get the bigger numbers first, you know. But we're going to finish this in the next 20, 30 years. I'm confident of it. And I think uh, that and another great awakening will push the gospel to every corner of the earth, just like Jesus said. And I believe that is a part of uh, the signs of the end coming. And we're going to look at that later. So this Great Commission Church, not only did it start in the 1700s, the point is it's still going on today. I got saved during the Jesus movement. Many of y'all did too. And that was been what? I've been a Christian 50, 50 years now. So 50 years ago, the fourth great awakening made a huge impact in my life and many others. It made a huge impact in the mission movement. 
Many of y'all have been on mission trips and helped plant churches in other countries. You'd go there for a week or two and coordinate with other teams. And that's how we planted a lot of churches throughout the world. So yes, the Great Commission Church is still going on. And yes, there's probably been four Great Awakenings that historians acknowledge, probably more. And Jesus has said there's going to be at least one more. And I personally think, you know, depending on how long Jesus tarries, there might be several more. But one thing's for sure. The Great Commission Church is alive and well. And it is because it's like the Church of Philadelphia. Now, it's interesting about this, this Great Commission Church, historically. And this is where we're transitioning into a little bit of prophecy. Let's go back down to uh, verse 10. This is the part where Jesus has a message for the church. And it says this, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, obviously, this was written in John's day, and there was persecution going on. We've already talked about that. So this is probably a promise to the Church of Philadelphia that whatever persecution is fixing to come up may be the, the same one that the Church of Smyrna was going to face. He was saying, look, you're not going to have to go through that. You're going to be spared it. Maybe that's what was going on. We don't know for sure about that. But one thing is clear. This is written more as a prophecy. This is saying something to the... Great Commission Church, the, represent, the representation of the Philadelphian church today. And it is alive and well, like I said. So what's it saying to the, the remnant, the believers who are faithful, the believers who have a little strength, the believers who are obedient for the small churches who are still having an impact in their society? They never deny Jesus. They're still going on. Listen again what he says. Because you've obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, this Greek word here is pererosmos, and it's different than philipsis that we read earlier. When we talked about philipsis, it was talking about in the church of Smyrna, the tribulation of 10 days. You remember that? And... Uh, we talked about how whenever you saw that in the Bible, the word philipsis or tribulation or persecution, if you have a modern translation, is always referring to Christian persecution. So when you talk about the word tribulation, you need to realize that it's not talking about that seven-year period of time of Jacob's distress that we've talked about several weeks ago. It's talking about Christian persecution. And Christians will always be persecuted. They will always have to face philipsis. But this word is perosmos, and it's different. It is talking about, literally means a temptation, a temptation of the world, or testing of the world. And this is totally different than philipsis. This here is what is referring to, I believe, as the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, that seven-year period where God will start uh, letting his wrath show in an ever-increasing manner to try and test the world, and always out of grace. He's trying to wake them up so that they will repent and get saved during this time. But it is a testing 
And this is different. That's a different word. This is not talking about Christian persecution in a prophetic sense. This is talking about the seven-year period of Jacob's distress. And we've already talked about that earlier. So this, this uh, phrase here is saying that the Great Commission Church, the church that we are a part of, will not have to go through that seven-year period of Jacob's distress. That church today, the remnant, the true believers, the Great Commission disciples will not have to go through the seven-year period of God's judgment and wrath that the Bible calls the time of Jacob's distress. We will not have to go through that. You say, well, Todd, aren't you going out on a limb? A lot of people think we will. Well, I have to go with what the Bible says, and it's not just here either. There's another passage. Look at 1 Thessalonians, okay? 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. And if you have trouble uh, finding all the books of the Bible, like we all do sometimes because we're getting old, just remember all the T books are all together, and they're in alphabetical order. So you have uh, Thessalonians, uh, Timothy, and Titus. They're all there together. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to this. Paul's talking to the church of Thessalonica, and he said, he's writing this. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Now listen to this sentence. He, referring to Jesus, is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. You can sit there and say, well, that's, that's talking about uh, judgment day. Not necessarily the time of the seven-year period of distress. Well, you could interpret that. I think it's talking about both because that seven-year period of uh, time of Jacob's distress is definitely one where God is judging the evil of the world and the sinners of the world. Look over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God decided to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ not to pour out his anger on us. So these two promises, plus this message from Christ uh, in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, I think establish a strong uh, argument that the Great Commission Church, the Christians who are actively pursuing their faith today, whenever Jesus comes back, they will not go through that seven-year period of time of Jacob's distress. And we're going to talk more about this and establish this truth more firmly later on in several sessions later on. But it comes up here, and so I have to acknowledge it. We have to talk about it. But I think it's clear that the Great Commission Church, and if we live long enough to see when Jesus returns, the Great Commission Church will, not go through that seven-year period of time called Jacob's distress. And that's a beautiful promise. So he says that to the church of uh, Philadelphia. But he says one more message, too, and it also applies in a more prophetic sense, a historical sense, and to us, because like I said, 
Things have transitioned now in the study in the book of Revelation. We are now in the time period of the church where we are alive. The Great Commission Church is going on today. Sure, it started in the 1700s, but it's growing on, it's going on today. And each great awakening grows more and more powerful and more and more fervent with the Holy Spirit power. So let's look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says this, look, I am coming quickly or I'm coming uh, fast. It will happen in an instant. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. In other words, it's saying, look, I will come so quickly. Uh, this is commonly called the rapture. We'll talk about that later. When Jesus comes and gets his bride, it will happen so quickly in a blinking of an eye. So he says, you better be ready because you're not going to be able to sit there and say, oh, well, he's going to come back for all the Christians on this date 10 years from now. So I'll be able to live any way I want to until the day before. Then I'll get right. No. He says, hold on now. Be faithful now. Because when he does come, it'll happen so quick. You won't have time to prepare. So you have to prepare now and be ready now. So following our usual pattern of interpretation that we've been doing for all the churches of Asia, we've seen how the Church of Philadelphia in John's day was a very dynamic church, and God had put an open door before them because he had a job, a mission for them to accomplish, and he could trust them to do it because they were so faithful and obedient, a you know, spirit-filled church that had power. Even though they were little, they had strength. And we've seen how this also relates to the historic time period that started in the 1700s, the Great Commission Church. The uh, product of people in the Great Awakenings pursuing God's heart and trying to become totally sold out to God. And this is beyond Catholic. This is beyond Protestant. This are true believers serving God. And they may be part of a small church or a small group, but they have great power and God has used them and has been ever since the 1700s. So you need to start looking now, not as Protestant versus Catholic. You need to start looking again at the church as the field of the wheat and the tares. Whether it's Catholic or Protestant, there's a lot of tares out there, a lot of false teaching, a lot of bad churches. But there is a remnant, the wheat, in a church, maybe near you. Maybe you're going to one. And even though these churches may be small and scattered across the world, these are the ones that Jesus will use, that he is using, has used them for 300 years, and will continue to use right up until the time he comes for his bride, the church. So it is happening now, people. So look at the church, because this is going to bear a big impact on how you interpret things later on, starting in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but you need to look at the church, not as Catholic versus Protestant. You need to look at it as wheat versus tares, as the remnant from the false people within the church. Denominations don't matter. It's the remnant, those who are faithful who are pursuing the Great Commission, who have dedicated their lives to serve God. Those are the true disciples of Christ. Those are the true Christians. You can call yourself anything you want to, 
But a tear is a tear is a tear. But the remnant, the true believers, are shown by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and spreading the gospel, the Great Commission Church. So we've seen that. I want you to start looking at the church that way. So this brings us up to the point, how can this apply to us today? And let's talk about that question. Can you even have a good church today? Yes, absolutely. I think it's pretty apparent from this study. Good churches are churches that are based on the Great Commission, who are spirit-filled, who are following Christ's directives. But it's more than that. And so let's, let's get a little specific on the ingredients to make a good church. What makes a good church? You know, just like what ingredients does it make a good cake? Let's look at what ingredients make a good church. Well, the first thing is to have a good church, we need to repent of all the sins of the, of the, of the bad churches for two, almost 2,000 years now, since the uh, time the church was born uh, and, and spread for almost 2,000 years now. And we've gone through these sins. I'm not going to go through the whole uh, six, I should say five churches I've already studied with you. Again, let me just list some of the main ones that you should have taken note on during the last several weeks of our study. We need to repent of the loss of zeal, you know, having left our first love like the church of Ephesus did. We need to repent of assimilating into the culture like the church of Pergamon did. And we need to repent of the false teachings of Baal, of Mary worship, of purgatory and indulgences, okay? Like we studied with the uh, church of uh, Thyatira. We need to repent of all this false teaching, and we need to repent of uh, this concept that we can pay for our sins through works. This is all false teaching, and just like they used to uh, in the historic time period of uh, before the you know right before the Reformation, where they were selling indulgences, we need to realize that that is just like us today, saying that you can work your way to heaven by being good. All that is false. We need to repent of all that teaching. If you want to be a good church, you have to repent of all that. It means that you can't say, oh, you know, other people are doing uh, Ash Wednesday and Lent to make themselves holy before God and, and to, uh, we're going to do that too, to kind of go along with them. No, that's Paul, part of the false teaching we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That's saying, look, I can sin any way I want to, but now through my works, I'm going to be made holy. You're only made holy by the blood of Christ. So all this false teaching has crept into the churches, whether it be Catholic or Protestant, we need to get rid of. You, you can't do rituals to win God's favor. It's only through his grace that you have his favor. And it's only um, his grace that saves you. And it's the blood of Christ that cleanses you from sin, not your works. So we have to repent of all those false sins. And the key sin we need to repent from is Nicolaitanism. Nicolaitanism, where we teach that the pastors are up here, or the priest is up here, or the pope is up here, and the rest of the people are down here. The conquering of the laity, that's got to stop. You must reject all teaching of Nicolaitanism if you want to be a good church. Now, remember, 
you know, just because you're a Protestant church doesn't mean you're free from this sin. A lot of people say, point to the Catholic Church and say, well, that was the fulfillment of the Nicolaitans there. Well, yeah, they got that problem for sure. We've talked about all that, but I've seen it in Protestant churches too. Now, I talked about Calvin. Calvin, you know, had set himself up as the boss of the church in Geneva, and he had the council and basically led the way to do this, ordered them to do it. They executed 58 people 58 people in a four-year time they executed for disagreeing with Calvin's teachings of predestination. This all happened between the years of 1542 and 46. This was the Protestant Reformation that we talked about, but yet they were still falling trapped to the sin of Nicolaitanism. Executed 58 people and exiled another 76, all in four years, for disagreeing with Calvin's false teaching of predestination. So we have to reject Nicolaitanism. Even if you're a Protestant church, you have to reject it. I've noticed that there's a lot of Protestant churches now that are using the phrase, the pastor is the CEO of the church, the chief executive officer. And there's been more and more uh, churches going this route and saying the pastor is the boss of the church and everyone must submit to his rule. I know of a church that made everybody sign a covenant. And those people are not allowed to leave the church. If they, if they decide they don't like that church anymore, they want to go to another church, they're told they can't leave unless they get the pastor's permission. Now, that is just absurd. I mean, that is total absurdity and poppycock. And if you're in a situation like that, that's not of God. If your pastor is not teaching the Word of God, if you're in a situation where your church is not a good church, then leave. You answer to no one but Christ. He is the one you follow, not an earthly person. Well, there's only people on earth, right? Uh, and there's no one else. You know, They're not living on Mars. So not any human do you have to follow. You follow only Christ. So we have to reject Nicolaitanism. The next thing we have to do for a good to be a good church is we need to equip and empower the believers and, you know, the laity. But let's not call them the laity anymore because you're equal. Just like it said in Matthew 23, you're equal. The pastors are not up here. There is no laity. You're all brothers and sisters. You're equal. And we need to equip and empower the believers. That's exactly right. I want to read a fact. Verse in Jeremiah 3, verse 15. Listen to this. And I will give you leaders or shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. You see, that's the kind of pastor you need. That's the kind of pastor a good church needs. You don't want a pastor that says, you have to do what I say because I'm the CEO of the church, or I am the pope, or I am the priest, or I am the pastor. No. You want a church that has a shepherd that leads by giving you knowledge and wisdom and understanding. In other words, you want a pastor that doesn't push you around, but leads you in a loving way by teaching you the Bible, by equipping you, giving you the knowledge and understanding that you need to be a disciple of Christ. Pastors, listen to me. If you are not teaching your people how to study the Bible, you're not doing your job. 
If you're not teaching your people how to share their faith, you're not doing your job. If you're not teaching your people how to stand on their own two feet and grow as a Christian, the pastor, you are not doing your job and you are failing the cause of Christ and you are being disobedient to his word. And you, my friend, are a Nicolaitan. You're conquering the people so that you can make a profit and money with your ministry through a church. I don't care if you have a church of 5,000, 20,000, or 50,000. We all know, we've all acknowledged it. It's out there in the research. You know it and I know it. We all know it as pastors. That the mega church model is not discipling people. And if you keep holding on to the mega church model instead of designing a ministry of small groups that will uh, teach people and the understanding of Scripture. Teach them how to study the Bible for themselves. Teach them how to share their faith. Teach them how to become teachers and disciple others. Teach them to do the things that every Christian needs to do. If your church is not doing that, then you are failing and you're just here making money off the Word of God, and I hope God disciplines you. I do. It is time to wake up. We need to reject Nicolaitanism, and we need to equip and empower the believers to do the work of ministry. Just like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, we need to equip the believers to do the Great Commission. That's why the Great Commission Church has been so successful, because it was the people, it was all the believers answering the call of God, not just a few people who want to set themselves up as pastors. The fourth thing we need to do if we want to have a good church is that we need to obey Christ as the head of the church, not man. Now, I just got through kind of giving a tongue lashing to the pastors and the leaders of the modern American church. I'm going to say the same. I'm going to give the, a tongue lashing now to the people who sit in the modern American church. If you are trying to escape your responsibilities as a disciple by throwing it all off on the pastor, then you're wrong. Christ is the head of the church, and I'm here to tell you Christ has called you to make disciples. Christ has called you to do the work of service. Christ has called you to have a ministry to spread the gospel to disciple others, to be able to teach them the word. He has called you to be studying and praying in your word on a daily basis and not just depend on someone else to spoon feed it to you once a, a week on Sunday morning. So ask yourself, are you truly obeying Christ as the head of the church? Or are you just being dependent on your pastor to do it all for you? He can't live your Christian life for you. So rejecting Nicolaitanism means not only are you declared equal, but it also means that they are going to equip you to do work. The days are over for being lazy. Lazy people in churches aren't obeying Christ. Only people who are fervently following the Great Commission can say they are obeying Christ. And the fifth thing, you must have an enduring faith. Just like the church of Philadelphia had, they did not deny him. So evidently they were persecuted at some point, like we said, but they did not deny Jesus. So you must have an enduring faith. 
And you remember when I said that the name Philadelphia has a, a bearing on this? Philadelphia, brotherly love, phileo love, the city of phileo love. You see, Jesus wants you to get to the point where you are so close to him. You have that bonding love, that deep brotherly friendship love with someone. That's right. That's why he says in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. He wants that close relationship with you. And that can only happen if you have an enduring faith. If you are weakened in your faith now because of what's going on in our society, then you need to strengthen yourself up and get closer to Jesus. Get into the Word. You need to have that strong, enduring faith. Don't deny Jesus during the dark times. And if you will do these five things, we repent of all the seeds of sin and false teaching that we've seen in these churches. We reject Nicolaitanism, and we empower and equip the believers not just give them the tools to do it, but give them the power and say, yes, we are behind you. Go and serve God. And if we obey Christ as the head of the church, not man, which means we take the Bible as our authority, not what a man says, but what the Holy Spirit says in the Bible. And finally, if we have an enduring faith, if we do those five things, we will be a Christian that is useful in the Great Commission and in the kingdom of God. And if you have enough of those Christians together, then you'll have a good church, just like the Church of Philadelphia, a church that Jesus can brag on. And listen to what he says in verse 12 to the victorious, the reward of those who are victorious or overcome. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write my God's name on them, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and they will have my new name inscribed upon them. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So he says, first of all, you will be a pillar in the church and you'll never have to leave. And if that sounds like, oh, that's not a great reward to you, then you need to get your heart right with God. Because if you are a Christian who is truly devoted to Christ and following the Great Commission, you know what that means. Because that's the thing you want most, to be with Christ all along and serve him and worship him. And by serving in the temple forever means you never have to leave. That's why I like doing what I do with churches. That's why I can work so hard in the church. I don't like leaving the church building because if you're doing things right in a dynamic church, there's always something going on. There's always believers that you can help and encourage and teach and train. And if you really have a heart for Christ, you don't want to leave. You want to keep on going. He also says you'll be marked with his father, Jehovah God, in his name. And that also is a great reward. To be known and marked, inscribed, or tattooed if you're a modern person and, and like those things. Whatever, how you want to you know, picture it in your mind. He says he will mark out 
He will inscribe his new name upon you. Because you see, if you are a Christian that is part of the remnant, sold out to the Great Commission, you already know you're Christ. And he's already marked you inside. But this, almost like a brand, inscribing his name on you, it lets all the world know that you only have one king, one God, one boss, and that's Jesus, the Messiah, and that you worship him. The three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one true God will mark his name on you. And that is one of the best rewards anyone can have. But it doesn't stop there. He says, then you will also live in the New Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that later because it is a whole chapter devoted on that in the end of Revelation. But basically, that's heaven. And I want to point out that this already starts telling you a little bit about heaven. Heaven's not a bunch of clouds where you're sitting up there bored playing a harp. It's talking about serving in the temple. It's talking about doing things. It's talking about having his name inscribed on you so other people can see. I want to tell you something. If you're lazy now in church as a believer, you're going to be hard up up in heaven because there's going to be a lot to do. You ain't going to be bored because you will be able to worship God, whenever you want, with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other believers, you'll be able to serve in the temple. You'll be able to do whatever he tells you to do. And there's going to be a, a new heaven, a new earth, so much more than clouds and a harp. So get that image out of your mind and realize what's going on today is a fulfillment of prophecy. And you are alive in one of the churches that will still exist when Jesus comes back. You're part of the Great Commission Church. So I encourage you, take advantage of that now and sell out to God. Put Jesus first in your life. And no matter what, serve him with your total uh, soul, spirit, soul, and body, your total heart and soul, and strength. Give it all to him. Lay it all on the line and put him first because that is the type of people that he's looking for. And churches like that are the ones that he uses to change the world. Wow. We are living in good days, people. And my time is up and I've ran over, but please go back over and look at this material. Don't just skip through it. This is important. This is happening today. This is prophecy coming alive today. And we'll talk more about it next week when we look at the Church of Laodicea. But until next time, do me a favor. Keep your eyes to the sky because he could come back at any time. And read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link.
Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.